Pray with me. Father, what a comfort we have in you to be able to sing that through all circumstances. We know that it is well because you hold all things and you hold us. You are the safest place in all the world. And so, Father, we come before you and we gather as a community this morning because there is work for your spirit to do within us. And, Lord, we want to say that we open ourselves up before you. And wherever your spirit wants to speak or wants to work, we want you to have your way within us. Have your way here, Lord. Speak truth. Dispel lies. Reclaim us where we've been lost. And remind us again of our home in you. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Go ahead and have a seat. So last night I was at home and scrolling through the internet, I decided to take a look for a little while and shop around at different tombstones and what people had written on their epitaphs. And I don't normally do this on Tuesday nights, but it was either that or scroll through Facebook feeds and see what people were saying about the presidential race, and that just sounded depressing. (laughs) So I came across some interesting tombstones and epitaphs and things that were said about people at the end of their lives. One that struck me was a guy who just had this stone written, and it was actually on the very top. There was nothing on either side, and all it said on top for anybody who walked by was, well, this sucks. (laughs) There was another unmarked grave at a small little graveyard in Massachusetts, and on it it said, here lies an atheist, all dressed up and nowhere to go. They had it written on there, Martin Luther King Jr.'s tombstone, epitaph, free at last, free at last, thank God Almighty, I'm free at last. I have no idea what led me to start looking through these things, but it was fascinating to do, and I started to wonder, what will people say about me? What would they say about you if, I mean, you got one line to sort of summarize what it is that you poured your life out for? Every day you and I are making steps to move toward what exactly that is. Are you becoming the person you want to be? Are you becoming the person you want the world to see? Are you becoming what it is that you want to have said about you? I don't think they actually etched this on his gravestone, but two different times in the Bible, both in 2 Samuel and in Acts, it was said of David's life that he was a man after God's own heart. That might be one of the sweetest compliments anybody in history has ever been paid. To be a man or a woman after God's own heart. We've been reading so much of David's reflections this semester as we've looked through the Psalms, and I want to ask the question with you this morning is, how did David get there? How does David become a man after God's own heart? And therefore, how do we become people after God's own heart? First, a story from 1 Samuel chapter 11. 
In the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. They destroyed the Ammonites and besieged Rabbah, but David remained in Jerusalem. One evening, David got up from his bed and walked around on the roof of the palace. From the roof, he saw a woman bathing. The woman was very beautiful. And David sent someone to find out about her. The man said, she is Bathsheba, the daughter of Eliam and the wife of Uriah the Hittite. Then David sent messengers to get her. She came to him and he slept with her. Now she was purifying herself from her monthly uncleanness. Then she went back home. The woman conceived and sent word to David saying, I am pregnant. If you know the rest of the story, David begins to start trying to cover up his tracks by inviting Uriah to come back and setting it up so that he'll maybe have a few too many, go home and sleep with his wife, and then he'll believe that he was actually the father of this child. And then when it doesn't work quite that well, then he sends word back to the leader of the army that Uriah should get sent to the front of the fighting line so that his life will be taken and he will die, and then at least that way we'll be able to cover up this whole mess. And as all of this is taking place and David is struggling hard to cover his tracks, the prophet Nathan then comes and approaches him in chapter 12. The Lord sent Nathan to David. When he came to him, he said, There were two men in a certain town, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had a very large number of sheep and cattle, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb he had bought. He raised it and it grew up with him and his children. It shared his food drank from his cup, and even slept in his arms. It was like a daughter to him. Now a traveler came to the rich man, but the rich man refrained from taking one of his own sheep or cattle to prepare a meal for the traveler who had come to him. Instead, he took the ewe lamb that belonged to the poor man and prepared it for the one who had come to him. David burned with anger against the man and said to Nathan, As surely as the Lord lives, the man who did this must die. He must pay for that lamb four times over because he did such a thing and had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, You are the man. You are the man. This is what the Lord, the God of Israel, says, I anointed you king over Israel and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave your master's house house to you and your master's wives into your arms. I gave you the house of Israel and Judah. And if all this had been too little, I would have given you even more. Why did you despise the word of the Lord by doing what is evil in his eyes? You struck down Uriah the Hittite with the sword and took his wife to be your own. You killed him with the sword of the Ammonites. And now, therefore, the sword will never depart from your house because you despised me and took the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your own. This is what the Lord says. Out of your own household, I'm going to bring calamity on you. Before your very eyes, I will take your wives and give them to one who is close to you, and he will sleep with your wives in broad daylight. You did it in secret, but I will do this thing in broad daylight before all Israel. Then David said to Nathan, I have sinned against the Lord. We may wonder why we started talking about the question we wanted to ask this morning of how it is that David becomes a man after God's own heart and then proceed to read a story about the worst thing that he ever did. How does David get there? How does David become a man after God's own heart? Or maybe even worse, what a scarier question, 
What does it mean the heart of God looks like? If you can do this and still be after it. The answer to these questions comes not in Nathan's questioning of David or the finger that gets pointed in his face, but rather of David's response when confronted by the prophet Nathan, which leads us to Psalm 51. This is David's written response after coming to terms with his sin that has now been put back in front of him. And all I want to do with you this morning is walk through this passage. I think this text holds within it the deepest reason why David is a man after God's own heart. None of us are ever going to do anything grand enough in this world to actually prove ourselves or deserve the love of God. None of us will earn our way around the cross so that we don't actually need the sacrifice of Christ or the heart of the gospel. But maybe it's more in how we come to him and how David models that that actually testifies to what his life was really like. He may have not done the same sins as David, but we've all committed our own. And we're all called to come back before God to get right with him again. This is how a man after God's own heart does it. Have mercy on me, O God, according to your unfailing love. According to your great compassion, blot out my transgressions. Wash away all my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. David engages in the first and most essential component of any act of confession. He absolutely just throws himself on the mercy of the judge and the one that he is before. And David doesn't minimize anything. David doesn't deflect. David doesn't play the blame game. Well, we were at a dance and I was three beers in and she was just throwing herself at me. I'm a guy. I have needs. God, you know this. You made me like this. Nope. David doesn't even go towards the line of, well, well, well she was into it too. No deflection. No passing the buck. My transgressions. My iniquity. My sin. Can we do this when confronted with the darkness inside each one of us? My transgressions, my iniquity, my sin. David lays it all on the line because he knows the heart and the character of God. When you come before God in confession, there's nothing that you can hide from him anyway, so why mince words? For hundreds of years, the church has had this element of confession and assurance worked into its weekly liturgy and weekly worship practice because we must come to terms with how badly we need a Savior in order to understand the significance of what it is that we've received. In praying through this psalm this morning, I was just spending time and I had this picture in my mind of what it looked like to see this psalm lived out in my own life. And I imagine standing before God, and then in the middle between us was Christ. And I'm black. And the closer you got to the center of who I was, the darker it got. And then as Jesus stands in the middle, and his work is revealed before the Father, and the Father stands and sees me through Jesus, it's like a two-way mirror. Everything dark within me starts to get absorbed into him and it leaves me. And from the Father's vantage point, all he sees is white on the other side of Christ. But here's the best part. 
as I started to take a step towards Christ, everything started to become brighter. Everything starts to become brighter. The love of the Father through the Son, the work of the Son, and my movement back towards Him. And we all started to become brighter. Our confession is just us coming clean and walking before and trusting in the work of Christ. There are no self-made sinners who finally find their way to forgiveness. A self-made man is a great attribute in American culture. There's no such thing as a self-made forgiven person. It all stands in the work of Christ. We need it. And in order to experience it in full, we need to be honest with ourselves. For God sees every crevice of our heart anyways. What silly games we play as Christians sometimes. Walking through our religious practices. Not fully convicted of what's really going on inside. Sometimes we just play the game and walk through the motions. David knows this point in time in his life. The motions are useless. In verse 3. For I know my transgression and my sin is always before me. Against you, you only have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. So you were right in your verdict and justified when you judge. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. You taught me wisdom in that secret place. Sin is staring David in the face. He can't get around it. In high school, my high school job every summer was to work in a fish plant. And one of the worst things about working in a fish plant is the way that it smells. As we'd gut all these salmon and throw their guts in a carcass tote, and then we'd have to take it outside and it would bake in the summer sun. And if you had to go near that thing, many people in their first week of work had to go outside and I watch go behind the building and throw up because they couldn't handle it. It was disgusting. Fish guts baking in the sun. I remember one day I came home from work reeking like fish. I take all my gear off. I hose everything off. I hang it all outside. I come inside. I take a shower. And then I come inside and I sit down on the couch. And then my mom and my sister come inside. And they're like, oh, Aaron, take a shower. I'm like, I did. And it was like in me. It was in my skin. It was in my hair. It, I, like I couldn't wash it off of me. And there are times when I've had sins in my life where it feels the same way. I can't wash it off me. I can't make my way back to where I have to be. I can't get clean enough. And so David knows there has to be this different approach, right? He comes to God like verse 5. Surely I was sinful at birth, sinful from the time my mother conceived me. I reeked of this stuff. Yet you desired faithfulness even in the womb. And you taught me wisdom in that secret place. This is the movement that David's starting to experience. Verse 7. Cleanse me with hyssop and I will be clean. Wash me and I will be whiter than snow. Let me hear joy and gladness. Let the bones that you have crushed rejoice. Hide your face from my sins and blot out my iniquity. Cleanse me with hyssop. Old Testament law talks about hyssop being used in two particular places. If you had either come in contact with a leper or you had touched a dead body, you had to cleanse yourself with hyssop. David is trying to find language to describe how dirty and disgusting he feels. 
He says, it's like I've just touched leprosy. It's like I've just experienced and touched death. And now I need the deepest form of cleansing you can possibly offer because I don't feel right. And I want to feel right again. David wants to get back to the place where he's in God's presence. He wants to experience restoration. I don't know if your experience is ever the same as mine. When I sin, it's the last time I ever want to go to God in prayer. When I've been doing a whole lot of things wrong, it's the last time I want to go before God and worship. It's very much like my kids. When they do something terrible at home, they don't want to come and find me. They want to go and hide. I think each one of us does the same thing before God. We feel terrible, so we don't do the one thing that we absolutely need the most. We try to hide. We try to cover up, right? In, this, in, the, in the story that we read, David's primary question driving all of his actions is, how, how do I cover this up? How do I make this right? And as he goes through this process, it's just one sin compounding on top of another. Laziness, coveting, adultery, lies, more lies, murder. So often when we have sin in our life, we either want to minimize it or we start this sort of cycle of trying to cover it up, even if it's for our own mind. We think that if we just tell ourselves enough stories, we'll trick ourselves into believing it's okay. But David says, I feel like I've just touched death. And when we have sinned, what else have we done other than come near and touch death? Every time we sin, it's an act of arrogance. God, I know your law. I know what you want. I know what's right. But I am choosing something different. And now I've put something in between me and you. And you can hear it all through the psalm. David feels it. You ever been in this place? Where you feel like you just put a barrier between you and God. And that barrier needs to be removed and it needs to be the work of Christ that stands back in that place again. And as we come back to Easter in the next week, I'm asking you to think on this long and hard. Have you ever been plagued by something so bad that you couldn't worship That it stole your joy from you. The ability to stand and feel right before God. This is David's longing to get there as he continues in verse 10. Create in me a pure heart, O God, and renew a steadfast spirit within me. Do not cast me from your presence or take your Holy Spirit from me. Restore to me the joy of your salvation and grant me a willing spirit to sustain me. David opens up verse 10 with create, the Hebrew word bara. It's the same one that happens at the beginning of your Bible when God makes something out of nothing. God, this work, whatever it's going to take to make me right again, is not something that I can do. I need you to bara. I need you to create. I need you to do that thing where you make something out of nothing because, God, I've got nothing going for me now. Even the words that David chooses are appealing to the power of God in order to set him straight. You do what only you can do, Lord. David is not appealing to his own work in order to make this right. He's given up covering his tracks. It failed him. It didn't work. And in the story, that primary question of how is it that I can cover this up has now turned into the primary driving question of how do I get back to your presence? And how do I get back right again? And this is the same question that has to drive each of us in this process of confession so we can move back to assurance and salvation God, I'm claiming the work of Christ, and I want what you came to offer. 
David wants this, he says, in his heart. Literally, this translation is his bowels, the depth of his being. Not just his feelings, but his cognitive processes as well. He wants restoration. He wants to be made right again. He wants to go all the way back to the beginning of the story. And guys, this is the center of our story. Isn't it? A God who takes the worst of who we are and makes things right again. Because Easter isn't for your shiny self. It's for the worst of who you are. Back at the beginning of that story, 2 Samuel chapter 11, in the spring, at the time when kings go off to war, David sent Joab out with the king's men and the whole Israelite army. Kings are supposed to be going off to war in the spring, but David doesn't go. He sticks around. This month, Social Work Club on campus is doing a whole lot of workshops. We'll be showing a documentary next week on pornography. And all the stories I've ever gone through with different people talking about their own struggle with pornography or even just the temptations of it, the number one cause and the number one place where people say, I end up falling prey to this, is when we end up in places where we are bored, when we're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. That's where we get caught. Frankly, that's where we get caught with pretty much all of our sin, isn't it? We're not doing what we're supposed to be doing. We're choosing our own narrative. God says, this is the place of blessing. And I say, yeah, but I think I'll be more fulfilled if I go this way. And so the story starts off at the spring when kings go off to war. David sent Joab, somebody else, out instead. And now he's left lounging around in Jerusalem. And with all this power and all this ability, David indulges. I think there's a powerful message in here too for all of us of how it is that sin comes into our life in the first place. When we step outside of doing the good things, it's really hard to spend two hours looking at porn when you've just offered to mow somebody else's lawn for them. It's really hard to get ourselves into trouble when we're out doing beautiful things good things on behalf of others. You can't ever just take something else out of your life. You have to put something else in its place, and we've learned that in the Psalms. David wants to worship again, and he wants to get back there. I'll read the rest of the Psalm now as the story finishes. Then I will teach transgressors your ways, and sinners will turn back to you. Deliver me from blood guilt, O God, you who are God my Savior, and my tongue will sing of your righteousness. Open my lips, Lord, and my mouth will declare your praise. You do not delight in sacrifice, or I would bring it. You do not take pleasure in burnt offerings. My sacrifice, O God, is a broken spirit, a broken and contrite heart you, God, will not despise. May it please you to prosper Zion, to build up the walls of Jerusalem. Then you will delight in the sacrifices of the righteous in burnt offerings offered whole. Then bowls will be offered on your altar. David goes into the topic of sacrifice in the psalm because according to Old Testament law, there actually was no sacrifice for a deliberate premeditated sin. David's saying, I got nothing. There's nothing even within the system you gave us, God, that's going to make me right with you at this point in time. I have nothing left to do but just simply throw myself down before you. All I've got is myself to offer in this sacrifice. None of the pigeons, none of the first fruits, none of the lambs, none of the other offerings. Nothing works for this situation. 
I have grieved you too badly. I have gotten to the worst of my original sin and I have drank deeply from it. Its poison has wrecked me and I don't know how to get whole again. And so David gets invited into this process of confession. And this, my friends, is not God's way of guilting his church. This is God's way of setting us free. Confession is possibly one of God's greatest gifts to his people. New things happen when sin is cleared out of a space so that the Holy Spirit comes back in. Every great movement of revival and spiritual rebirth that has happened in history takes place amongst prayer and repentance. When we get rid of something inside of us that's plaguing us, we make room for something new. If you want to experience Easter in a new way this year, we take something out. And this is the whole idea behind Lent, right? You take something out so you can put something else in. It's not about just sacrifice and self-denial. It's not mimicking the sacrifices of Jesus. It's opening up a space in our life so God can have more of it. It's a statement before God saying, I tried my way and it didn't work. And I tried covering up and I really suck at this. And what I need, what I really need at the end of the day is I need you. Confession frees us from ourselves. Confession frees us from sin. Confession claims the work of Christ that is so freely offered to us and says, I want it. I want everything that you came to give me and I want to be made right again. I want to stand in the place where I am righteous before you because the rest of this, this is awful. I don't like the way that I feel. And our perfect Father stands with open arms just saying, come. I don't care if you fell and you skinned your knee. I want to make it right again. I don't care if you've thought something horrible. I will make it right again. Our God is so full of grace that the invitation stands and that picture is ours, that Jesus just simply wants to leech all of the evil, all of the darkness out of it and instead allow us to become sponges and soak in his grace and his love. Then I will teach transgressors your ways. That's what David says. We learned this last semester in Mark too, right? Every time somebody's healed, Jesus says, go and tell what the Lord has done for you. Your witness in life and the ability for you to tell the story of God in this world at the end of the day, will always depend on how much of him you were able to take in. That's what we're asked to do. Receive in a new way. Receive in a bigger way. And then through that, we can give in a bigger way to the world. Your witness will only ever be as strong as your repentance. And the life that you experience of renewal in Christ will only ever be as great as the depth of honesty that you have before God. We pray with me. Father, we know that the story of humanity is the story of our rebellion and of you trying to make us right with you again. Lord, our own efforts have failed. Our practical humanism has failed. We've tried to pull ourselves up by the bootstraps and we have failed. Father, this morning we say thank you for the gift of repentance, of confession, that you have a pool of grace that has no bottom, that your arms can always stretch wide enough to wrap us up.
And he didn't just create on page one, but you're recreating us every day again. Father, your spirit breathes life. You took dust out of the earth and you breathed life into it. And Father, there are places inside of us that are dead and we need your life again. There are places inside of us where we don't even believe we can be made new. We've almost attributed to you some sort of flawed design in who we are. But Father, we claim the work of Christ and we ask that you would make us new. Give us a courage of restoration. A hope that is confident in what it is that you've done and what it is that you will finish within us. And Father, even in this time as your Holy Spirit convicts every one of us here of our own sin, Father, we ask too that you would quickly lead us to the place of assurance and restoration. Allow us the freedom to be broken so we can enjoy the celebration of being restored. Father, we know that this is what our story is all about. We've wanted to pretend so many times that we really are okay that we don't need your forgiveness. That the better we are as Christians is the better we perform and we act. Father, teach us to be better sponges of grace. Better truth tellers in our confession. Then, then our witness will grow. Just like David claimed. Father, teach us these truths and work them deep inside of us. Allow us to experience the depth of how good you really are. In the name of the one who came out the grave the other side, reigns over us and sets us free, we pray. Amen. We rise and receive a parting blessing in your coming week. Objects of God's affection, recipients of his love, and beneficiaries of his work. You are loved by the Almighty. You are being changed by the Almighty. You are being given a voice in this world. Soak his grace in deeply, and may you be powerful ambassadors of the work of Christ in this world. Go in his name and go in his peace. Amen.